Welcome to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste. And the destination Danshui, 1884. Welcome to 1884. It's an age of invention, ironclads, and electricity. It's also an age of imperialism, and European powers have by now gotten used to throwing their weight around in Asia. France and China have come to blows over control of Vietnam in China's backyard. No one has declared war, but the Sino-French War is on anyway. Taiwan will be caught in the crossfire. And one battle, fought on Taiwanese soil, will enter local folklore and even get imperial attention. In 1884, Taiwan is an outpost of imperial China. The ports of Danshui and Keelung in the north end of the island have been forcibly opened to foreigners. A small foreign community, mostly British, has sprung up here. Some have come to trade, others to convert. John Dodd is here to trade. The British merchant has been in Taiwan for 20 years by now. He's the father of Taiwan's tea export industry. By the height of his career, he's shipping out tons of Taiwan oolong tea every year. He's well known around these parts for the cane he uses to walk after an accident. And we know what the troubles of 1884 looked like from the ground thanks to a journal he kept through the war. You could say he was a kind of war correspondent. A newspaper back in British Hong Kong prints his journal as a column whenever new updates come in. With the help of this journal, and Ms. Lee of Danshui's Historical Society, we're going to be revisiting the time that the French came to Danshui. All of this leaves a really big question, though. What does Taiwan have to do with Vietnam? Ms. Lee explains. She says French planners look at Taiwan as an easy Chinese target. They felt that Taiwan would make a good bargaining chip, a hostage really, that they could trade for better conditions when it came time to negotiate peace. She says that Dan Shui's geography makes it an obvious point of entry. In addition, the river that enters the sea at Dan Shui runs back inland, giving easy access to a new walled town we now call Taipei. Is Taiwan really a soft target? Either way, a French fleet is on its way to find out. On August 5th, the fleet arrives at the port of Keelung, down the road from Danshui. When Chinese troops don't surrender their fort, the French blow it up. Some troops even manage to land and plant a French flag on the ruins of the fort. John Dodd and everyone else knew that something like this was coming. But the question now becomes, what will happen to Danshui? Ms. Li explains how Dan Shui prepared. Torpedoes are laid in the river. Then, boats filled with stones are sunk, blocking off the river's entrance. The French ships are too big to skim over the torpedoes and the obstacles. Dodd evacuates his offices further inland and heads for Dan Shui, where at least there's a British consul and a British ship with marines to protect neutral foreigners. Merchants like Dodd are afraid of looting if they leave their property behind. And since no one knows how long all this will go on for, many of them decide to stay. The calm before the storm ends on October 1st. French forces capture Keelung. On the 2nd, they come to Danshui. Neutral foreigners hang out their home country's flags, hoping it will help protect their property. Dodd notes British and German flags. 
but it doesn't seem to help at all. The French bombardment sends shells flying in all directions, even into homes miles away. Dodd says that the plaster falls off the ceilings. He tells us that Mr. Jameson's roof is hit, and so is Dr. McKay's garden. The foreigners are lucky, though. Some Taiwanese civilians are killed in their homes. Sadly, many more are killed by touching unexploded shells. And not all were just curious. By the end of the day, we're told, they're selling for 60 cents apiece. The Sino-French War does have a lot of action. Over on the mainland, the French smash an entire Chinese fleet in under an hour. But in Danshui especially, the war is a bit weird. For weeks, the French battleships are there, and they do nothing. Dodd even uses the wonderfully Victorian word dilatoriness to describe the total lack of action. Finally, on the 8th, French troops attempt a landing. The shelling demolishes buildings and severely injures people. Dodd says that time slows to a crawl. But while people are a bit shaken up, they're not panicked. I think you can see this in some of the details. In the midst of all this destruction, Dodd doesn't neglect to mention that a French shell has lodged itself in Messrs. de la Prekend Company's tennis lawn. How frightful. John Dodd is too far away to see the action himself, and with all the explosions, he's a bit preoccupied anyway. So Miss Lee tells us about what happened next. The French force has a day's supply of food and ammunition. Once they've landed, they're on the move. But even the local plants are against them. Some have sharp thorns, and others have big twisted roots. Different divisions lose sight of each other in the thick brush. The landing is a disaster. The Chinese are firing from two sides. They're well hidden and protected behind defensive walls. To disorient and frighten the invaders, the hidden Chinese troops take out their pots, pans, and cutlery and start banging them together. With all the noise, the panicked French troops imagine there must be a huge army in front of them. They start firing at random. By the time they get out of the thorny brushland, they've run out of bullets, and reinforcements aren't there yet. During the retreat, some French soldiers are captured and beheaded, and their heads are displayed publicly, leading to formal protests from the British consul and ship's captain. Apparently, the skirmish wasn't entirely a one-way street. Dodd tallies up the number of injured treated by the foreign doctors, and notes that most of the wounded have been shipped in from North China. Other accounts have been written, but Dodd lived through it, which is why his journal is especially interesting. But he leaves out one of the most interesting details. He doesn't seem to have been much of a fan of Taiwan's folk religion. But that's one of the reasons this battle is remembered. For more on this, we return again to Ms. Lee. It's said that the gods helped out too. The sea goddess Ma Zhu and the bodhisattva Guan Yin both used their skirts to gather up bullets from mid-air and dump them into the sea. Meanwhile, another god called Master Qing Shui used a horsetail whisk to deflect bullets, protecting the people, the troops, and the houses. People said that during the battle, they literally saw these gods in the sky. And when the Chinese commanders heard this, their morale surged. Unknown to many, you can still see evidence of this legend at three local temples to these gods. The emperor himself sent commemorative plaques to these temples to thank the gods for their service. 
The Sino-French War drags on into the next year. France holds on to Keelung and also takes the main town in the Penghu Islands off Taiwan's coast. But in Danshui, things turn very tedious. After the failed landing, the French commander orders a blockade. Dodd's journal begins to read like a castaway's diary, as supplies run out and only outgoing mail is allowed through. The war does end, though. When it does, the effects on Taiwan aren't immediately obvious. The only thing that Dodd records is that by the time French troops have left, some people near Keelung have picked up French words and mannerisms, even a good accent. But the war does have an impact. The imperial government recognizes Taiwan's strategic value, and it doesn't seem to be a coincidence that the same year the war ends, it decides to upgrade Taiwan to a province. The decision takes effect two years later. The war also provides Taiwan province with an able governor. Liu Mingchuan was sent over from the mainland to defend Taiwan against the French invasion. As the new province's first governor, he's credited with all kinds of things. Taiwan's first railroad, a telegraph line connecting it with mainland China, and a modern postal system. Those are all stories for another time. But there is a chance that none of that would have happened if it hadn't been for a few now obscure months in the 1880s. With the drama at Danshui, we can sweep away that obscurity and see how these months affected the people who lived through them. When the British ship finally leaves port, Dodd himself says that while the Marines on board have been through a lot, they're not likely to forget what happened in Danshui in 1884. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me 